Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. In this podcast series, we've been talking with educators we know are thoughtful and effective to hear how they are coping with the unprecedented closure of their school buildings and how they're planning for the future. Today, June 18th, my colleague Tanji Reed Marshall and I are talking with Dr. Sonia Santelisas. Dr. Santelisas is CEO of Baltimore City Public Schools and is widely considered one of the most thoughtful superintendents in the country. I was lucky enough to work with Dr. Santelisas when she was vice president of the Education Trust from 2013 to 2016. Since 2016, she has led considerable change in Baltimore, and last year we saw that every grade level that took the state assessment had improved over the previous year. Some of the improvements were tiny. Some were substantial, but the fact that the improvement spanned all grade levels was impressive. We can't know what the district would have shown this year because the state canceled the assessments in the wake of school buildings closing. In recognition of the work she's been doing, the Baltimore City School Board renewed her contract in the spring. The Baltimore Sun's news story about her rare second contract said that her years had been remarkably calamity-free which is high praise indeed. Welcome, Sonia. Hi, thank you, Karen. Always good to be back with you. Well, you were calamity-free until... I was going to say... <laughs> I did chuckle <laughs> when I heard you say that. I mean, uh, but it was not a calamity of your, of your making. It was a worldwide calamity. So <laughs> you have that anyway. Maryland in general, but Baltimore in particular, has been a hotspot for coronavirus. It's also been a center of active protest against police brutality, not just since the murder of George Floyd, but since the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody five years ago. How are you and your family doing in this tragic and historic moment? Um, So, you know, I think, you know, compared to a lot of people, my family and I are doing fine you know, and um, doing fine is relative, you know, sure, are my children just as impacted as others who want to be out, who miss their friends, Um, you know, of my three daughters, some did better with distance learning than others, right? So we're, you know, we're dealing with that, but relative to um, other families across the nation, and frankly, um, Baltimore, you know, even with a lot of the, the racial protests that we've been experiencing as a country, um, you know, Baltimore went through a lot of that, as you noted, just noted, Karen, about, you know, five years ago. And this was the fifth year anniversary of the death of Freddie Gray. And so a lot of what we are seeing is, is just bringing back so many memories for so many people. And while we have had protests here in Baltimore city, clearly like across the world, um, it has not been, you know, it has not been as, as eruptive as I think it has been in other places um, for a variety of reasons that people smarter than me will write about. But, but overall, you know, I take my grandmother's, you know, 
kind of viewpoint, which is, you know, thankfulness is an antidote for, um, you know, kind of depression and self-pity. And I think that's kind of the frame when I look across what's going on. What's your sense of how Baltimore students fared in the shutdown? I, I understand that you contracted with an outside organization to make direct contact with students and check in on how they were doing. Thousands of students were contacted, I understand. What have you learned from those student wellness checks? And was that something you would recommend to other districts? Yes. So we, you know, we did have a lot of learning from from those wellness checks. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Karen, because I know you've talked to different people um, throughout this crisis, you know, we found what a lot of people found. We found that our most vulnerable students were the ones that were missing. We had large numbers, particularly in our schools with high concentrations of immigrant families, ELL learners, um, a lot of a lot of transients, right? Just for basic survival purposes. We also found people who were much less likely to um, reach out for assistance because of the political climate that existed already where immigrant families did not feel safe. So we experienced that. Um, We also, um, in the contact in quote, finding students. And, you know, I was, I've been on many calls as a lot of people have with superintendents across the state and country. What, what Baltimore had uh, very similarly was large percentages, two large percentages of students that we did not have contact with either virtually or even in person initially. And so it required, to your point, a really redeploying a number of our partners that would have been kind of contracting with us in school-based activity, who, you know, to their credit, were really willing to uh, get out in the communities, in neighborhoods. Um, You know, we were, we had principals who were helping to find kids, and you know this as much as anybody would, um, Karen, this time reinforced the fact that for most families, their strongest connection to school is through their local school, through their principals, through their teachers. And so schools that already had incredibly cohesive cultures, frankly, they were the ones who did best at the very beginning in connecting with families. Um, School cultures and communities that struggled with those connections were the ones where we had to deploy significant resources, significantly more resources, and actually helping to connect. Uh, We also were reinforced in the belief, and I think the learning for some, um, that a number of our community partners had the kinds of relationships that, that made it easier actually for them to find kids than it was for a large behemoth school system in a, in a formalized ways to find kids. So, you know, if you, if you asked a, a neighborhood mentor, right, you know, has anybody seen Sonia? Oh, sure, yeah, her cell phone got cut off last week because, you know, she's out of work and couldn't pay the bill. But I know where she is. You want me to have her call you, right? That And so when we got into kind of the community-based relationship space, um, we were able to really close the gap in terms of connection. The place where the gap is still most prominent is in, Uh, the gap in actual access to learning, right? And so, you know, what many, many people have highlighted, written on was true also in Baltimore, access to devices, access to internet and broadband, community-based issue, 
Um, really proud, frankly, of the young people and community organizations that just sprouted out, uh, sprouted up. So, you know, we had um, coalitions of Black mothers who, you know, they said, wait a minute, we got you on this one. Uh, you know, we're going to push and they're pushing Comcast and young people um, who are doing that as well. And so that has been, you know, it's sad that it was necessary, but it has been heartening to see um, not just my staff, but the larger community come together and really push um, for that kind of access. And so, um, you know, the other thing which was interesting, it was only one conversation with the principal, but one that stuck with me where she said she was debriefing at the end of the year with her teachers and the numbers of them uh, who collectively, they as a school community had to admit um, that some of their preconceived notions that went unspoken about which families, right, can actually, quote, support their children, um, went through a real shift, Karen, during this event, right? That parents who were using their cell phone data and appreciated the calls. And, and the you know, principal said to me, you know, there were some of my teachers who admitted, you know, actually these, these folks do call me and they do respond when I call. And the principal said, you know, yes, because you're not just calling to tell them what's wrong with their children, right? <laughs> you're calling to check in and say, how are you doing? Do you have any needs for support and what's going on? So there have been silver linings and learnings that, um, you know, like I, I have principals now who say even when things go back to normal, they had far more engagement with families when they knew that they could connect via cell phone versus now I've got to come to your one family night that you hold in this way. Um, and that that was actually a lot of parents that some folks that thought of as being aloof actually were incredibly appreciative and are actually more connected now because of that relationship that's being built. And so now the question we have to ask is systemically across 79,000 students and their families, how do we, how do we prioritize that? And build on it and, and make that the bonding experience that it could be as opposed to the disintegrating experience that it also That's exactly be. right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've started this huge uh, citywide conversation this week, um, looking for input from community organizations, parents, teachers, students, to really think through how do you reopen. Um, I, I was really interested in that. Have you gotten a lot of response yet? Um, and if so, like, has that been helpful or just kind of eye rolling? <laughs> <laughs> Probably a little bit of all of that, um, to be <laughs> honest. Um, so, you know, again, one of the things that was reinforced was, you know, as happy as we were to get a 50% response rate weeks ago when we were calling, you know, families about, um, you know, internet and food and other kind of places where they needed assistance, we immediately knew when we were rolling out um, kind of information gathering this week about reopening that, you know, and our equity director, Dr. Duran, whom I love, said, okay, yeah, we got 50%, which is higher than we normally get, but what about those other 50% we didn't hear from a couple of weeks ago? And so we started um, learning from that and, and having a, a, an aligning plan for those families, which will be much more focus group, um, socially distanced focus groups, but much more focus group um, kind of door-to-door -door 
kinds of feedback. Uh, what we're seeing overwhelmingly, I mean, in the first 48 hours of releasing the interview with staff, we got, my God, like 6,800 responses. I mean, it was crazy. Um, we overwhelmingly know now, at least from the initial, again, and we're going to keep doing this as we roll out um, possibilities and as we're feed, like this isn't a one-time you know, information gathering, but overwhelmingly, Karen, we saw teachers, you know, at least three quarters of them are like, yeah, we're not coming back um, to, to in three quarters. Wow. Yes. Or, or three quarters. Well, and I'm, I'm shorthanding by saying we're not coming back, but they have serious concerns about coming back. And right. so what that, what we're taking from that is one, there's a portion of that 68% that we know, like any of us, is going to need far more specific detail about what coming back looks like. So when you ask it generally, right, coming back in person, that's different if you're someone who's suffering from, you know, three conditions that we know, right, leave you more vulnerable to this virus as opposed to, you know, I just need to make sure you're going to have social distancing and testing, right? And then I might be willing to come back. So we're pushing to the next level of data. The other piece we know, which I think is consistent around a number of school districts, um, is there are significant portions of families who already know, I want a virtual option. And they've been very... Clear about that. Yeah, they've been very, thank you, very upfront about it. That we will stay with you, Dr. S., if you've got a virtual option, but if you don't, we're out, right? And I'm fact, I had one mother saying in one of the CEO town halls that I do every week. Um, normally, it would be during this time, but I'm with you all. And um, you know, one mother said to me, she said, "You know, look, if I homeschool for a year, can we come back?" And you know, she she was very you know upfront. And again, these are the people that are happy with city schools, let alone the people who are already on the fence. Like, well, we're not really sure. I'm not really sure how I feel about my local school. And I mean, these are the people talking to me who are pleased with their local school who are saying, can I homeschool for a year and come back? I need a virtual option. Uh, mm -hmm. People who are saying, if you have a virtual option, we'll stay with you. Um, but similarly, you know, we, we know that we have to give teachers more professional development, more support, because the variability in those experiences, which I know you all have been hearing, um, is profound. And I will tell you, the beauty of virtual learning is the ability, even from my level, to pop in and out of classrooms. And it has been, I mean, incredible to see just the variation. I think, um, I, I think Tanji, Tanji might know, but when one of our teachers, Miss Fort, a fifth grade um, math teacher, who was amazing, right? All of her kids. And let's be clear, she teaches in hotspot, what would be considered COVID hotspot areas. She had like 95% of her students regularly logging in. I mean, some of them were in on grandma's tel, you know, cell phone one day, then they got their laptop, you know, their Chromebook, they were on that and shifted. But it was because Miss Fort is just, she has the relationship, she has the content. I mean, those kids were doing fifth grade standards level math, mm -hmm. new material, not redone material. And it was because of relationship and 
knowledge of the content. And so we've been looking at how do we leverage that in a virtual setting. Um, and there are some young people, and I know you've already heard this, who actually did better in a virtual setting. Kids who were checked out. I mean, I had some of my you know, alternative school principals who were like, you know, Dr. S, to be really honest, we have heard from some children more in this virtual environment than we did before. And the, the success story for me that I, I'm not going to cry with you all um, here, but that I had the two other times I previously told the story that is just indicative of this idea of relationships combined with purpose and rigor is that we had 20 of our young people who attend Eager Street Academy, which is our school um, for incarcerated youth that is located um, in a prison. It's, it's in a facility. And those 20 young people, because of the advocacy of Mavis Jackson, are incredible. She's new, just a first year, incredible college readiness director. And that principal um, put together two courses with the University of Baltimore. And the 20 young people at Eager Street who enrolled in those courses had the combined highest GPA in those two courses of any of the high schools in Baltimore City. And they, when Mavis Jackson, when Dr. Jackson spoke to those young people, she said, Doc, I had to apologize because what they said to me was that in 12 plus years of schooling in city schools, this was the most engaged, challenging, and fulfilling mm -hmm. learning they had been a part of. Mm -hmm. And she said, I could do nothing but, but apologize to them and say, I am sorry. We are going to do better. I mean, she, I mean Mavis was the perfect person because she, she, didn't, she didn't make excuses. She didn't do any of that. She said, you're right. It's horrible and we need to do better. And because of what you all have gone through, we are going to do better. And so one of the things we're looking at for our high schools moving into the fall is we got a group of high school students that actually would be better off enrolling in University of Baltimore courses. Right. 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 Some right. of whom who wanted, you know, I don't know what work will look like, but, you know, we've had this ongoing challenge with young people who need to work. And you know, if, if you're going to be able to enroll in University of Baltimore courses, get a high enough GPA that it, it rises to central office data point, like, what are we doing? Why not? Exactly. So, so you may not be crying now, but <laughs> I kind of am. That's, that's amazing. Um, well, I, one of the one of the people we've been talking with is Mary Haynes Smith. I don't know if you remember her, but you and I visited her school uh, in in uh, New Orleans years ago. Yes, and you know she in thinking about you know well we're going to come back and until the second wave and then come out again. You know she's like that doesn't make any sense. So her line was we need to perfect virtual learning. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such a clear way of thinking about it. It won't work for everybody. We know it won't work for everybody, but the last system didn't, you know, the in-building didn't work for everybody either. So how can we figure out what works for whom? And it may not be the kids you expect, right? right. Like uh, the kids you expect to do poorly on 
uh, virtual learning may not be the, the 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 students who actually do poorly. Um, so how do we how do we build on this knowledge? Um, that is a huge challenge for a city superintendent. But I did notice a news story that you have bought a lot of hotspots. So you're at least that's one of the things you're planning for the fall, I gather. No, it definitely is. And I, you know, no surprise that somebody I have great respect for would say it would have said something very similar. But, you know, one of the things that I've said to my team uh, related to that is there's a whole lot that we don't know. But one thing we do know is we were one to four, meaning one device for every four students in city schools prior to our March closure due to COVID. And what I do know is we must be one to one when we open, right? And so, you know, and I remember when I said it, staff was like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of clear. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that, so that, that's a given, right? And so since that's a given, now let's work on these other pieces, like you said, like Hotspots, um, the philanthropic community. And I, I do have to give a shout out to our mayor and city council because they came up with um, $3 million from the youth fund that went directly to purchasing devices and hotspots uh, for students. So no, that, that I, I would completely agree with Mary on that. Like it is, it is absolutely that. And then the other given is we have got to be able to have an all virtual option for families who will not come back. Right. And we have to be able to move to virtual even in socially distanced physical sessions. So in case you have, have to, to close down again. Exactly. We, we right. cannot, you know, our, our community was so, so supportive of us, even with the bumps and bruises, even with, you know, the, the difference in, in quality in terms of expectation in the spring. They were so appreciative that we attended to the food um, challenges and needs. Um, but it is a different day in September and that or the new school year, um, the end of August. So yeah, my folks, I have been saying that the last three weeks, that those are givens. Now how we do it, there's a whole lot of other things we don't know that we do know. And I completely agree. Mm. Yeah. Well, any kind of in-person instruction is going to require a lot of planning. I mean, unbelievable amounts of planning and a lot of purchasing, right? Thermometers, masks, shields, toilet lids. Yeah. That's a new one. Uh, sinks, hand sanitizer, all, all kinds of expenses you were about to receive a massive infusion of funds from the state. I, I, I know that's a painful topic, um, but the governor vetoed that, um, saying that in this time of coronavirus, we can't you know, spend more money on schools, and then proceeded to cut the, the money to schools and uh, warn of more cuts coming. Meanwhile, <laughs> Meanwhile, back at, you know, Washington, the ranch. they're they're kind of uh, proceeding at a rather leisurely pace, I would say, the Senate, um, uh, considering whether to send some more money to localities right. so that schools aren't, I mean, this must be unbelievably frustrating to you, Sonia. No, it, it is. And, you know, again, I go back to that, you know, advice and framing from my grandmother, um, the one thing that we had the benefit uh, of within Maryland is that we at least have a little bit more runway to try to figure some of this out. 
because my budget for this year, and this is true, and you know this, um, Karen, um, Tanji, I don't, I don't know where you live, but the in this in in Maryland, because of how school funding is in statute and the whole ten yards, there's not most of the county governments are maintaining um, flat funding. Right. Funny. Yeah. So, so unlike my colleagues in, say, Texas that are waiting with bated breath to see whether the 30 percent, yes, that's right, 30 percent, right. they have to take now right. or this coming school year. You know, I get back in that mode of, well, OK, at least. Sorry, we have yard work going on in the back. I know that. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's at least making us you know, somewhat thankful that we have a little bit of time. You know, we've got $11 million that the city won't be able to fund. You know, I can finagle, not ideally that. But um, no, I agree with you. And I asked, I was on a call the other day with Congressman Scott, and I asked him, I said, so, you know, the Senate president wasn't wasn't seeming too open uh, <laughs> to any kind of additional uh, support, Congressman. How are you thinking that might go? And he was at least hopeful. I mean, he, which I appreciate, I don't know whether he just wanted to make me feel better um, in light of everything else we're doing, that he seems to think something will get done. Um, Our local legislators, um, you know, Senate president, um, the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Speaker Jones and, uh, and, uh, you know, and Bill have been, been really good about saying and again, it's saying, we just don't know what they're going to be able to do about it, but saying, look, now more than ever, we need to recommit. It may mean that the money comes in, you know, slower, but it is, it, it no. I mean, I, I have said, and we're looking now, you know, FY22 is going to be a very different picture. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. And just to think about what you guys said about the funding, just here in Loudoun County, the superintendent has a 9% increase in the school budget. Really? Yep. So Loudoun County being in Virginia. Being in Virginia. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The fiscal year 2021, 9% increase from the current budget. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I was on a call, you know, a little bit ago on a webinar actually, and he was talking about, you know, they were asking him to cut the budget related to cultural relevance, anti-bias and systemic issues of that. And that was the one area cultural training for the staff, the one area where he said he would not cut. Good for him. So uh, yeah, he said he would not cut it. And so we'll see what happens with that budget because that's a thing and it's real. You know, Karen talks about how the, the sort of requirements are going up. when the money's going down, right? So that's going to be, you know, an ongoing conversation that people have to have. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Tanji, I kind of uh, monopolized the questions. Do you have some questions? No, I think the one, the one big thing, and I've always been intrigued about and admire the work you do um, from a curriculum standpoint, and you've been a lot of questions around the decisions you've made regarding curriculum, the and and you because you are the person who knows curriculum in ways that other superintendents don't know it. 
to that sort of granular level, and I've heard you talk about that. How does that play in how your teachers, you talked about um, Miss, you talked about what was her teacher's oh, name? Miss Jordan. Yeah, from the fifth grade, she's that teacher who held the line on grade level appropriate materials because you already said it, she had the established relationship. So baseline relationship intact. And then she coupled that with deep content knowledge, standards-based instruction. How does that move forward so that this revolving door of, you know, whether we are standards aligned or not, the sort of the, the ways in which we've had a seesaw in the quality of instruction, how does that maintain in the event that you, because like you said, when, we come, when schools reopen in September, people are not going to be patient anymore. Yeah. Right. Like they're going to have an expectation that you've worked out all the bugs. And even if you have to move to a a remote landscape, that the quality of learning does not continue to be this finished, unfinished, unfinished instruction. I finished it. I didn't finish it, you know, because your state tests are coming. So how do you help and support with that maintenance so that the learning gets finished and maintains quality? No, and that 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 is the question. I wish I had a kind of these are the four points, and that's not right. going to do that. Um, but you would probably know I was lying if I did just come. That's right. Like that. um, so, but no, I mean you're spot on, and I think one of them, you know, one one of the approaches really is in teacher development. You know, it's been a little little sticky um, in the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks um, with some of our union partners and talking about what that time looks like uh, just Mm -hmm. really. And, you know, they've been good partners. It's just, we disagree a little bit on this one. And so, you know, it takes time. It takes time for teachers to learn how to shift. So that's one. Two, um, our push has been now, a matter of fact, uh, our um, assessment and accountability team has been working on what does the re-entry assessment of students look like? How do we tell accurately where the, the learning loss has occurred during this period? Um, but I'm very aware of doing that in a way that is not like the first thing we rush to do with children who have been through this kind of experiences. Come on, baby, now let me sit down and see where you're Test your Exactly. Um, and so <clears throat> it's a, it's, it's a farm, it needs to be a far more kind of deliberate sequencing and support around that time for relationship building. And I have a council of teachers that I, I try to meet with fairly regularly, not as regularly as I, I, I would like, but these are teachers who are, who are, who are generally very good teachers and way back in March to their credit, we met the end of March, beginning of April, I think. They said to me, um, very prescient and very prescient manner, they said, you know, Dr. S, we were able to continue the teaching at the level we were because we had relationships built up from the beginning of the year. What we're not sure about how to do, and most of them agreed, was we don't know how to build that same level of relationship in a virtual space. Space. Mm -hmm. And so I said to them, yeah, you are absolutely right. And so some of the work they've been doing, and I said to them, like, so, you know, teach us, like, what, what, what are your best mm-hmm. kind of approaches, guesses, whatever you want to call it, to what the best way to do that would be? I think it is also shaping how we view what in-person time we do have, 
how are we organizing and prioritizing that time? Because if it's just assessment, right? So we're talking with some of our assessment and curriculum partners. Some of that actually can be done virtually. The relationship piece is harder to do virtually. So, and I I talked, I had that, I don't think she'd mind me saying this. Well, maybe I shouldn't, but one of the folks who's kind of one of the national virtual school space, who I happen to be a colleague, you know, I know her in other space. And I said, look, and by the way, they had, for, for better, for worse, for all the shots that are fired for and against, they had a seamless transition. And yeah. they, they did not yeah. miss a beat. Yeah. And I said to her, tell me what you would prioritize if you were me. And I had a feeling of what she was going to say based on other times I've heard her say this, which is why, you know, you got to actually talk to people. And, and, and one of the things she said to me, she said, I got to tell you, Sonia, I'd focus on the relationship piece. Mm-hmm. She said, I would focus on, she said, you're going to have kids coming in who have dealt with, right, racial unrest, whose families have dealt with varying levels of, of trauma from death from a pandemic, right? And then you've also got to build the kind of relationship and habits, academic habits that allow someone, that allow a student to actually believe that they can and have the skills to navigate some of their own learning, right? Which I know you and Karen and and I in various settings have talked about. See, this is where this over-scaffolding and spoon-feeding, right, comes like it, the, 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 right, they come home to roost. Pigeons have come home to roost. Like we were doing all this spoon feeding and now you want to know why kids are lost online. Well, they can't do things, they right? They can't do things, right? Because while we were shoveling this, you know, stuff all the time, we didn't think they were capable of doing things independently. And so now, lo and behold, so- They can't do it. <laughs> exactly, and wonder why, right? Wonder why. So part of what we're focusing on is how do we use the time to now make up some of that ground? How do we use the in-person time to do what, frankly, if we're all honest, we should have been doing all the time, yeah. but use the virtual space to do it. So we're also, we're also prioritizing that and um, pushing on our, some of our curriculum partners. And I got to give, not because of you know, any kind of payment I'm getting, but Great Minds was, was great with us. Like they stood up, video classes with their their staff with our curriculum that we could put on cable television right mm-hmm. like they they did that so our parents felt like they had something to go to it wasn't perfect it was fast but we didn't have to do it my teaching and learning team was not running around trying to find the best teachers to bring in in a pandemic to create videos they did all of that with us so that's the other piece we're asking for both our math, particularly our math and our ELA. Yeah. How do we now sequence, right, the, the curriculum and the learning in ways that, you know, particularly in math, we can do high leverage content mm-hmm. to prioritize that actually helps kids make up ground and we know are the real linchpins. It's harder in ELA. Yeah, because it's so integrated and you can't, and yeah, we don't want to pull it apart because then it doesn't work pulled apart. That's exactly right. (laughs) That's exactly right. And then, you know, I'll give a shout out for one of my twins who read me about four weeks ago. She did, she does not care that her mother's a CEO. All that means to her (laughs) is that she has greater access 
to give me her complaints and her feedback. And she came down after one of her sessions and she said to me, all you all care about is math and reading, math and reading. And she said, where did my science go? Where did my social studies go? This isn't really an art class, right? I mean, she went off on me. And I said, thank you very much for the feedback. <laughs> I'll send it to the office. <laughs> <laughs> to the office. The office. You know, but, but it was real, right? And so I'm sitting here even talking to you, right? Focused on, you know, the, the ELA reading, writing, literacy, right. piece and the math. Um, but, you know, what does science? Because, you know, for my kid, you know, she, it, I'll, I'll be told, she goes to school for the art, for the history and the science. That, that's what she goes to school for. The rest of that stuff, she doesn't like math. We make her do it. You know, ELA to her is like, well, look, I can read and I got a journal. I don't know why I need y'all now anyway. She's very clear about this. And so for her, the virtual space was further compromised because Mm -hmm. stuff that she loves about learning was pushed to the side. And so Okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna push back just a tiny bit. Yes. All you have to do is throw books at her. And and I <laughs> from superintendents or principals about throwing book. I mean, if they can, if kids can't read, okay, you have to deal with that problem. But once they can read and they love history and science and art, you throw books at them <laughs> and art materials. Like, wh- what are you thinking? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's but it's just that we haven't heard enough about throwing books at kids. Yeah, you know, but you know, it's a wonderful thing, opportunity. The other thing that. I worried, I wondered about as you were talking about your daughter, she exercised a level of agency that if other kids did, it would get them in a lot of trouble. Mm. And so, when kids return to school and they begin to walk in that level of agency. Are teachers prepared for that? Because lots of kids have lots more agency than they've been able to have before. And they're not, they may not necessarily be afraid to exercise and walk in that. And that could put some kids at a disadvantage. And so, you know, about students that's sort of like new, they're new now, right? Like, so she came to you. And there are going to be other kids coming to other teachers exercising agency and Karen's point about throw the books at them. Well, you throw the book at me and I want art. I don't want you to throw me a book. I want to do the art. And so if I push back on you and I exercise my agency in that way, because I've kind of been doing it, what's going to happen? Are the discipline policies in place to prepare teachers for that so they don't knee-jerk react to it? That they don't, they don't see that as talking back, but rather as good feedback. I'll take that under. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I just been thinking about that because it's so real. Yeah. They've been on their own to a a much greater extent. That's right. No, you all, you all are raising an excellent (laughs) point, which is why if you didn't notice, I I jotted a little on the side, (laughs) right? Because no, because really, because you're absolutely right. Right. And And we have been talking about the transitions, you know, in the ways I described earlier, but I think you're both spot on, right? That how do we incorporate that into our discussion about, you know, the wellness of kids when they return and and our SEL discussions and our kind of, you know, um, academic independence, right? Kind of conversations. And, 
And it's interesting because the, the intersection of those questions with also some of the racial equity questions that have blown up, right? Then just bring that to an entirely different level, right? And so, you know, it's, I mean, we, it was interesting. I went to one of our student protests, which was their protest and their demands were directed right towards the district. And what was interesting, you know, just, you know, to make your point, was that <clears throat> the protest originated from one school and, 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 you know, one of the kind of refrains of the demands were really around, you know, more Black history in the curriculum and other things. Well, what was fascinating was that the majority of the students that came and were asking that, and I'm not, God knows we're not doing it perfectly or as in-depth as we should be, but were, the, were from a school that had not participated in our Be More Me curriculum, which both of you know, right, has been our work to really elevate the history, right, and the learning that comes from your community as classroom. And I found it ironic. Now, I'm not saying we that should be everything, right? We had piloted um, this past year in about like eight, eight of our middle and high schools, and it was really only three to four weeks. But what was interesting to me was I said, huh, this is a school that didn't have that. And so in the name of, a, of autonomy, right, we didn't push it on the school. But what is clear is these kids had nothing. In its places. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, one of the things, yes, we're talking about now is this was supposed to be the year to roll it out district-wide anyway. And from a high school level, do we also need some kind of companion focus on Black history explicitly, right, to then frame that? But it was, but it was fascinating to me. And I started, you know, to your point, I said, well, I don't know if the autonomous decisions of adults are ready for, right, to you all's point, what students are now coming asking for, like, well, wait a minute, how are you going to tell me to sit back in this one history class? I just protested in the middle of a pandemic, putting my life at risk, right, watching a Black man murdered on film, and you want me to now bow to your autonomous decision not to adopt, right, a unit of study, a course of study that actually we have heard from middle schools, every school that piloted that curriculum, when teachers and students came to testify, said it was hands down the best learning they had done that they could remember. Wow. Right? Kids talk. Well, and let's just keep in mind, uh, just for people who don't know Baltimore, That's Baltimore right. is one of the maybe richest cities mm. in Black history. Oh, absolutely. There is, right? right? I mean, Maybe you can make an argument for New York. You can make sure. an argument for New World. I mean, there are a lot of arguments to make, but Baltimore is up there. It's up, right. It's, it's, up, it's got it's, it. Like it's there. It's, and the fact that we have to, that you had to make two decisions, that you invested in a highly regarded curriculum, but then you had to go back and do the investment again is the question that we have to keep pushing. Like, I, you, not I, but you as a leader with funds to appropriate shouldn't have to keep doing both. Like, why do you have to keep doing both of those, right? And, I, and, and Karen, you know, Karen's right. Like the history that Baltimore has to offer 
for kids who can go their whole life, spend 12 years and sort of get it haphazardly is sort of fiduciarily irresponsible. Yes. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I turned, you know, and to your point about those dis- real decisions around resources, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had an outside funder that funded the Be More Me. Wow. Right? Like they funded, you know, Gates Foundation funded that for us because we said this was important. Now, what's very interesting is I was standing in the protest with, um, with two of my cabinet members. We had gone out together and, you know, again, the young people were making their demands. And I said to them, I said, well, y'all, Gates paid for Be More Me, but looks like to me, we're going to have to go back and revisit our budget priorities because we did as a cap, you know, we had them all out. And additional staff in social studies did not make the final cut, mm. right? Because limited resources, we did that. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and said, yeah, looks like we got to go back and revisit that list. Mm-hmm. If we're go- and so, to, you know, to the point, you know, that you all were making, there are real leadership decisions and consequences for those decisions that now have to come abruptly in contact with young people who just are not going to be entering in the same way. I can't go, oh, you think I'm going to be able to respond to that demand? Sorry, we didn't no. have a budget for it this year. No, oh, we- I want to be there when you do, by the way. <laughs> I just want to be there and watch. I just want to be a fly on the wall and watch oh, it all happen. God, I would have lost all credibility. Like, I, that's right. I'm saying any inch of credibility. And I'm not implying mm-hmm. I have a lot of it, right? With, but the one you've got is gone then. It, it's gone, right? So, but, and I will tell you to the credit of the two cabinet members standing with me, they were like, oh yeah, you're right. We're going to have to, we're going to have to pull it from somewhere. But, but you're at, but you're both right. Like it, it. I don't think, and I, you know, that's why I jotted a note. We are going to have to really have very explicit conversations with with faculty, with central staff, with, um, you know, because even some of my central teams, nobody will believe this, but our school police probably have the best track record of responding to student feedback than any central office division in city schools. That's well, that's a good thing to to hear. But one of the things that strikes me is here's a group of students protesting, they haven't learned enough. This is like, (laughs) I'm I don't find that surprising Mm -hmm. or shocking or anything, but I think a lot of people would. Mm -hmm. They haven't learned enough, they're demanding that they have access to more learning. They know they can't necessarily do it on their own, right? Like they're not all autodidacts, mm-hmm. you know? Right, <laughs> like, right, right. right. Um, and they are demanding that their schools teach them more. I think that's so hopeful. I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. The fact that you feel you need to respond to it is also similarly wonderful. I hope other superintendents feel that way as well and principals and teachers because that is what we're going to need if we're going to pull ourselves out of this mess. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And like I said, I, I wouldn't be able to look either of you in the face or my own children if I were just, I mean, and that's what I'm saying that there is no other way to respond to that for exactly the reason that you said, Karen, like what, what are you going to, are you going to tell kids to go sit back down? And say thanks. We'll right. consider it. 
You're not ready to learn yeah. that. I mean, right. <laughs> no, we'll hold off. We'll, we'll hold off on that. Maybe if you go to college, we'll let we'll you let take you get a it. class. Yeah. It'll be an elective when you get there. <laughs> you guys, and you all will love this. One of, um, one of the young women who was ardently presenting the demands had a list of books. Oh, I do love that. Yeah. And share it. And said, this should be required reading. Wow. Every Baltimore city school student. We should not be able to graduate if we have not read these books by these black authors. So to Wow. So I love her and I want her list. Right. And get her on here so we can talk to her. And what what I love is, you know, they were up there yelling and da, 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 da. And she saw me, she's like, Dr. S, is that you? Good to see you. You know, after she's just gone off with, you all need to be doing this and you all need to be doing that. And I think it's the reasons you're saying, right? It's their agency. It is, you know, them demand, you know, how, how are you not going to respond to a demand to learn more, Karen, you know, to your point? Like what, how can you, how, how anybody could not give anything but an affirmative response to that? Is, is actually incomprehensible to me. I, I don't know how you'd be able to have move anything if you didn't respond to that. But you're that superintendent who has that very deep, granular curricular knowledge that a lot of your colleagues across the nation don't have to the degree, shall I say, that you do. Okay. <laughs> Well, we can say that. You can, you don't have to say it, That's but we'll right. say it. We will say it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sonia uh, Santalisas. This wraps up this episode of the Education Trust podcast, Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Today, we heard from one of the most thoughtful superintendents in the country, how she is facing the challenges ahead with a care and deep commitment to her students. If you would like to hear more from Dr. Santalises, she was part of a panel of experts in episode five of season two of Extraordinary Districts. I hope you'll go and listen. I'm grateful to Sonia for spending some of her valuable time with us today to help others think through what running a school district is like in these extraordinary times. If you found this conversation valuable, I hope you'll recommend today's episode and the entire series to your friends and networks. Please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. If you want to be in touch, you can email extraordinarydistricts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or me at Karen Chenoweth or Tangie at remarsh76. Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast through the magic of Zoom from Tonal Park. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust who supports this podcast. And thank you to the Wallace Foundation for providing financial support. Thanks, and see you next time.